Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Lake Pontchartrain's North Shore really is Louisiana's easy escape. Less than an hour away from the French Quarter and an equally easy drive from Baton Rouge and Mississippi's Gulf Coast, Madisonville, Mandeville, Abita Springs are all such charming little towns filled with hospitality and delicious dining opportunities. On this week's episode, we're visiting our North Shore neighbors. We'll begin at one of my favorite places, the Covington Farmer's Market. We'll speak with market founder Bo Gallup and those indomitable sisters, Jan Biggs and Anne McKenzie Mellon, who've kept the market rolling for decades. Then we'll go just a handful of blocks over to East Boston Street, Covington's main drag, where Tori and David Salazzo's Del Porto Ristorante and their casual gastro pub, The Greyhound Lie. Finally, we head a bit further north to Bush, Louisiana, where Ross McKnight and his family have cracked the code on true American-made foie gras. Fill up the tank and buckle your seatbelts. We're traveling to the North Shore on this week's Louisiana Eats. Every Saturday morning, the Covington Farmer's Market delivers a delicious dose of family fun right in the heart of downtown. Farmers, chefs, musicians, and foodies come together to celebrate the bounty that is Louisiana food. Widely considered to be one of the best markets in the state, it's also one of the oldest. Founded in the mid-1990s, Long before the farm-to-table craze began, the market was hardly an overnight success. It took years of hard work from countless people. We hear now from three individuals who were instrumental in getting the Covington Farmer's Market off the ground and shaping it into what it is today. The first two are a pair of sisters who sat down with us in Covington. I'm Ann McKenzie Mellon. And I'm Jan Biggs, and we're of the Covington Farmer's Market. Jan Biggs is the current market director, and Ann McKenzie Mellon is a longtime volunteer. Our third guest was instrumental in creating and running the market from the very start. He joined us via Zoom from his home in Maine. My name is Bo Gallup, and I was the co-founder with Kay Fallon of the Covington Farmer's Market. A native Midwesterner who attended college in Maine, Bo Gallup played a pivotal role as market director before his move back north in 2006. 
He came on board as a volunteer when the farmer's market was launched around 1995. Well, my father moved down around 1975 or something like that and, and moved to Covington. And I followed him. And I love Covington and I love small towns and I loved agriculture. And I've always had a sort of soft spot for community building. So the Covington Farmers Market was an outlet for that. Bo credits former Mayor Keith Villery and Covington Downtown Development Director at the time, Jan Roberts, for dreaming up the idea and getting the ball rolling. And they, they got in touch with me and Kay Fallon. Kay from Fallon Realty and Kay's an all-time Covingtonian. We agreed to volunteer and <clears throat> manage the market. We said we would do it. And, you know, that started a, a kind of bumpy road for a few years until we finally started going. Jan Biggs remembers what it was like when she first started working for it in 1998. When I came, there were probably about 10 vendors or so. New Orleans had just had started about the same time. So the whole thing of farmer's market was brand new. And people weren't used to going to yeah. a farmer's market. So, uh, and Bo Gallup was totally involved with getting it going. He asked me if I'd come there and help out. He was trying to think of ways to get people to come. Because at the time, you know, I'm, I'm not kidding, we really had maybe about 10 vendors, a lady that made pies, a guy that brought in vegetables from Folsom, but they were a week old, so everything was huge. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> you know, things just weren't quite, and the vendors would quit. And so he was trying to think of ways to keep the vendors. So he decided to start having music. So we just asked local friends who knew how to play, come. And then he thought of, well, let's see, that's not quite enough. Let's get restaurants out here and feed them, the vendors, and try to keep them. And we decided to hire Dan uh, Gill, the garden guru. We got him to come do a radio program from the market. Dan Gill's popular program, The Garden Show, aired then, as it does today, on WWL. Getting Gill to broadcast live from the market on Saturday mornings helped spread the word. Yeah, and we got, it became sort of a hallmark of the farmer's market that we had. We tried to have every week a cooking demonstration. And over the years, we had all the great chefs, Leah Chase and John Besh and Chris Caragiorgio from La Provence. And I think he was the cooking demonstration on this sort of what I'm calling infamous Dan Gill Day where we kind of had a coming out party. I think it was Chris Caragiorgio who did the cooking demonstration. I think it was the Abita Strings and they provided the music. And, and I called up all the vendors that we had ever had through the couple of years we had been in existence. And I pleaded with them to come out and promised them that they'd have a good crowd. So we kind of gambled, we, you know, sort of shot for the moon as it turned out, it was a beautiful day and we had great cooking and great music and great vendor turnout and a great crowd. And that sort of catapulted us into a successful future. People started slowly coming and then it just all of a sudden between music and 
food demonstrations and newer vendors coming in that had a better, that started understanding how to grow for people and for restaurants, that's when it's really started to change. And we went from having just 10 vendors to probably about 15. And then the next thing you knew, it doubled in size. But our market really was a, a special old place. We were on grass. We weren't on a parking lot, you know, and we had trees. So it made it a, a pretty inviting place. And I think with the tables and chairs and music, too, it just gave it a, a, a real community feel. You know, that you could tell the people were coming every Saturday and sitting at their table and eating their muffin and, you know. Having a good time. Having a good time and, and, and interacting with the community. Jan's sister, Anne, explains how she got folded into the fast-growing project. I just started going to the farmer's market, and then I was volunteering, helping out, making coffee and selling T-shirts and this and that. But Jan is the driving force of the market. There's no question about that. Well, Anne and Jan were and are great supporters and great, uh, without them, I'm not sure the market would be what it is today. Jan started volunteering for me back in the early days of the market. And then she kind of said, well, I can do this every weekend if you want. And that was fantastic because it gave me an extra hand trying to just, you know, it's a lot of grunt work, moving tables and moving the sound system and calling up people and doing our site visits. Then Anne brought her theatrical nature to the market and did many of our public announcements and stuff and introduced musicians and encouraged tips for the musicians. And you know, we had we had great musicians at the market. And part of that was because we encouraged tips and CD sales. And Anne was a big part of the promotion of that stuff. At the heart of every farmer's market are the small, often family-run farms that provide fresh seasonal produce. Bo explained how they sourced vendors to make their market a success in those early years. Well, anyone who's run a farmer's market, and I guess there are not many of us, would tell you if they're good managers, it's a tough juggling act because you want to have a lot of vendors but you don't want to saturate any of your sub-markets with too much of a given product. So if we had a flower vendor, we tended to want to protect that flower vendor until he or she was up and running and, and we felt like we could use a second flower vendor. We always did site visits. And anytime someone applied to the farmer's market, we went out and saw their operation and made sure that, you know, we never really had a problem with this, but made sure that they were producing what they said they were producing. And then as we became popular, it really wasn't a problem attracting vendors. It was a problem putting limits on vendors. And again, that was really just trying to make sure that we didn't saturate the market with vegetables or flowers or prepared foods or breads or whatever. The way I try to do it is, especially with, with produce, 
you almost can't have too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be a balance, so you can have too much because you don't want them all. Because that's what happened in the beginning. A lot of produce came, and if they didn't sell it all, and then so then they'd quit. And so I've always tried to balance so that um, everybody can make some money. You know, the life of a farmer is really not easy. You'll find someone who thinks they want to do it, and they'll come and send up an application, and then I never hear from them again because their first crop probably failed, or who knows. Mm-hmm. I remember Bo used to always say, whatever you do, don't count up your amount of time spent in the garden and how much money you made. Whatever you do, just do it for the love. And, of course, that is. The, a farmer is not going to make it unless he loves what he's doing. I mean, I love seeing vendors sell out. Well, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't like them selling out because I wish they had prepared more food or more vegetables, but I loved their success. And so that was always nice to see vendors have a good day. I think the farmer's market, you know, helped bring a focus that was already evolving onto, you know, local agriculture. Um, That was a trend that was already starting. But I think the Covington Farmer's Market brought it home, and I think it influenced a lot of people, the importance of buying local. And I think we affected a lot of vendors. I mean, we, we create, I mean, it was our goal to create businesses. I mean, so it wasn't just a love fest or huggy, you know, huggy, lovey kind of whatever. The goal at the end of the day was to make people money. And I think we did that, and I think we incubated a lot of businesses. An era came to an end in 2006 when Bo moved away from Louisiana to direct a nonprofit organic farm in Maine. During his 11 year tenure, the Covington Farmers Market had grown and expanded into a true treasure. Despite his central role in that success, Bo is too modest to take all the credit. There was a lot of energy back then, you know, and there were so many people that loved the city back then and contributed to its resurgence. You know, Covington's got a great history and and I was proud to be a part of it. And, and I'm, you know, I hope that I made a bit of a difference, you know. Running the market since Bo's departure, Jan has overseen its progress and seen the difference it's made in the community. Well, I think that's the thing I'm proudest of. And, but I think I've really got to give all the credit to Bo, to be honest. Yeah. He's the one that had the vision. And I've always thought, and I don't know why this is going to sound kind of funny, but I followed his vision. I always thought what he was doing was the way a farmer's market should be. He just always knew to keep it in food and in produce and in education and in community. Bo Gallup, Jan Biggs, and Ann McKenzie Mellon speaking with us about the Covington Farmer's Market. The market is in operation every Saturday from 8 a.m. to noon at 609 North Columbia Street. You can catch the second market on Wednesdays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on the Covington Trailhead. To hear a longer version of the Covington Farmer's Market's oral history, 
visit our website at poppytooker.com. Coming up next, we meet Tori and David Salazzo. From their California Meets Italy restaurant to a European gastropub, the couple are bringing the culinary world to Covington. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Hi there, I'm Tori Salazzo. And I'm her husband, David Salazzo. And our restaurants are Restaurante Del Porto in Covington and The Greyhound Gastropub in Covington as well. For more than 20 years, Tori and David Salazzo have crafted an idyllic small town life while bringing big new flavors to Covington diners. First, at their fine dining establishment, Del Porto Ristorante, and more recently, at their gastropub, The Greyhound. David and Tori are both professionally trained chefs whose romance began in 1999, working side by side on the line at Trevigne, one of Northern California's most prestigious restaurants at the time. We sat down together in our Louisiana Eats studio to hear the full story of how two of the North Shore's favorite restaurants came to be. People really have to look back in their culinary database to remember the time when fresh from the farm, grilled meats, when all of those things coming to us out of California were really fresh and new ideas. And that's what attracted you all to California, huh? 
Definitely for me, um, when I was looking at culinary schools, um, that was my first choice, California Culinary Academy, because I wanted to be in the Bay Area and I wanted to be around that movement that was happening, would have been happening. Alice Waters, the 70s, you know, but I feel like it was still very strong, you know, in the 90s. It's just kind of what happens out there. I had never really moved away from home. I was 26 or 27. I felt at home in Northern California. There was a, a vein of familiarity. So I really didn't ever feel homesick. And I'm a, I'm a really homesick person for New Orleans. Um, so I, I, I was able to kind of thrive out there and I became addicted to that style of cooking. And David, how did California lure you in? Um, well, when I was finishing up culinary school in New York, I uh, I was looking at really um, two places to sort of start my career, and that was either going to be in New York City, or um, I felt somewhere out west, um, closer to wine country, would be another great place. And uh, the idea of uh, getting an apartment in New York and uh, getting a roommate and trying to, um, you know. You know, working at the daunting, intimidating restaurants that were there, um, the the California sunshine was just something that uh, I felt that uh, with my degree that I was qualified to just go out there. And I, I, I knew I would find a job. I, I didn't know how intimidating and uh, intense it was going to be, but I was hoping for that sort of experience anyways. Take us back to what Trevenia was at that time. It was a place that was, uh, it was really at the height of its uh, popularity, I believe. Um, Michael Chiarello had sort of developed the whole place and the cuisine that, the Italian type of cuisine that he was doing there through the 90s and the idea of uh, Italian food that combined the concepts of fresh, uh, locally sourced vegetables that are at their peak um, and combining that with, uh, you know, Italian cheeses and Italian sausage. For my experience, it was something that I had never seen in any of the Italian restaurants that I had gone to. So, David, you're working there, and one day the kitchen door opens, and this beautiful blonde walked in. But I understand you were the only person in the kitchen who would talk to Tori. Um, well, you know, I had worked there for about a year, so I had been through the paces. And, um, you know, when I first started, I wouldn't talk to anyone except for saying, yes, chef, no chef, or whatever you need, chef. And, uh, you know, after about a year of that, I was comfortable enough in what I was doing that I could uh, just be a little bit more relaxed. A and little more empathetic to a new person coming in, especially a girl who who just really was overwhelmed by that scene, you know, um, and he saw me struggling one day and he just, I think, was in a position where he was able to offer help to me, you know, and I clinged on to that. <laughs> it was like it was like an island in the middle of an ocean, you know. And what an amazing culinary lesson you all learned that has stayed with you all of these years, because if I'm correct, David and, and Tori, what you learned at Travina largely still influences the way and what and how you cook today. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it was a real formative experience um, for both of us, I think I would say. And um, it was uh, an intense training in terms of the world of restaurants and um, one that, you know, is just invaluable to how we developed as chefs. 
And, of course, anybody who marries a New Orleans girl, it's funny how that works out. Y'all came home, huh, Tori? Point of contention. <laughs> Just kidding. 20-something years later. Um, he'll say I always had it in the plans. And I guess it was all over me. I mean, I didn't think that I was coming back. But uh, I came for a visit after we had met, and I was on the North Shore with my parents. They had just moved over here, and I was scouting restaurant locations. I was still in culinary school, and I had drawn this, you know, taken pictures and drawn this whole thing out for him. Um, And we were like, yeah, okay, maybe. Let's just stop by in New Orleans before we do other things. We wanted to travel to Europe and stuff like that before we really settled. And... um, we stopped off in New Orleans, and that was it. We got married a year later, and less than a year later, we opened up Del Porto on the North Shore. It's just kind of fell into place. I love the story of how Del Porto came to be because you all just happened to be taking a little walk one evening and spotted a place with a Ferent sign, oh. and it spoke to you, huh? Yeah, there was uh, just a little small storefront when we when we first opened at Del Porto that um, we had heard had become available, and uh, I was uh, overwhelmed. I thought it was at least a million dollars to open a restaurant. We, everyone, we'd always heard that. Everyone said, oh, you can't open a restaurant for less than a million dollars, and I was like, that's why I don't want to open one because I'm not— I don't want to borrow a million dollars. Well, that is really <laughs> one of the best parts of your story because you all have just— been so smart to stay within your means. I don't think anybody would believe that 21 years ago you opened up Del Porto with a $20,000 investment. Uh, the price of a car. And that's, <laughs> I think at 30 years old, we were like, this we could handle if we fail. You know, it just wasn't so much, like, it wasn't that overwhelming. It was to open a restaurant. And the thought of failing was scary, but it, like he said, it wasn't like we were in the hole, you know, a million dollars or in debt to somebody, you know. Um, so that just took a lot of the fear out of it and just kind of allowed us to really just do our thing. So you had 12 tables in this little tiny initial storefront, and um, it was the two of you all. And I think maybe you also had some help from the high school down the street. They had a culinary program. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we were able to get a couple kids from there and, of course, some some friends and family to put together the rest of our uh, sort of front of the house uh, crew and – when we opened our first weekend, it was, as you would expect, complete chaos, <laughs> uh, an electricity failure, and uh, many, many happy customers, maybe a couple that weren't as happy, but uh, many, many that were and that began to frequent the restaurant. That's such a beautiful story. And of course, to me, the perfect synergy of this whole thing is that Del Porto has always been a short walk from the Covington Farmer's Market. And that was opening up and really getting blowing and going at about the same time, too. So really it was. There was, um, you know, some people in charge of the Covington Farmer's Market that really wanted to um, make it focused on uh, bringing fruits and vegetables and the produce of the region to the Covington Market. So um, there's many great markets. There's also many great fruit stands all over the North Shore. But the Covington one was really focused on vegetables, and um, it was so easy for me. 
to just be able to go there and um, procure fresh zucchinis, fresh eggplants, tomatoes when they were in season, um, great melons, um, stuff that we could just uh, really make part of our menu. And um, it was growing every year, and um, it was fantastic. Well, after almost 20 years of Northern Italian, Cal Ital style cooking, I understand that Mrs. Salazzo was getting bored. (laughs) (laughs) Whose idea was the second restaurant? It was kind of both of ours. Tori's. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking about it for, uh, well, since before Evelyn was born, we've explored a couple different opportunities, including one in New Orleans when she was just a baby, and we decided that would be too hard to cross the lake, you know, with the other restaurant. Um, And it kind of sat for a while, and then we kind of put it on the back burner. And then right before the pandemic, we found an opportunity. A building became available, Um, something that was in our wheelhouse, something that we could afford. And something again that wasn't going to be a million dollars. Right. Something, we, but we were waiting for that for a decade. We just didn't want to put ourselves on the line with big, huge loans, things that we would never be able to repay. Um, this popped up and it was kind of like we looked at each other and we're like, I think this is the place. You and know? How, many, and how many blocks is it from Del Porto? Two. I mean, you know, <laughs> a lot of restaurateurs would right. question the wisdom of creating their own competition right. a few blocks down. We've been asked that question. Um, I, I, I always say if it's something different, um, you can't eat at Del Porto. Five, I mean, you might eat there four nights a week, but on that fifth night, you might want something different, you know? And what I have found now that we're open two years, um, we get the same customers. We get them at Del Porto a couple nights a week. We get them at the Greyhound a couple nights a week. And it just seems to be there's enough business in Covington to go around. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is remarkable about the two of you, um, when you look at great restaurateurs, couples who have who do this, Usually, the husband is the chef in the back of the house. The female half gravitates perhaps to being the sommelier, the front of the house. But if only there's two. <laughs> ah, I was looking for that because there's two cooks in your kitchen. A lot. Do do two cooks ever spoil the broth? Well, so no. I I, I mean, <laughs> we honestly have to, you know. Just say that we we both benefit from that. Um, being a chef, just just a chef in the back of the house is uh, is a sh- hard, strenuous job, and um, you know, along with a lot of creativity, like you have to be able to do all of these things. And having two people to be able to partner in how we accomplish those things has been just uh, great. We're very lucky that we are we're not two Type A personalities. We're very opposite, and so we don't compete. We don't struggle with, you know, these decisions. It's like, we always say this, he is a technique guy. I am like the fluff. You know what I mean? Like I am all about the the garnishes and the colors and the textures. He's getting it all right though. He's getting it all ready. You know what I mean? So I, at this point in my life, I I don't want to work as hard as him right now, but he's still into it. So I get to come along, you know, and help develop these menus at this point and put the final touches and stuff on things. And it's just really been a great partnership. It's how we met. We've always had a job together. We have never not worked together. Um, the one time we did not work together, I, I didn't like it. He may have, but I didn't like it because I, I rely on him a lot. And I think he does me. Um, and this partnership and relationship is spilled over into our personal life. 
that's how we do Evelyn. You know, that's how we do our home life. We just really share everything. So nothing is too difficult. And I feel lucky and sometimes a little guilty, to be honest with you, because it's a hard job. And I, I see chefs alone struggle. It's a struggle. It is hard. And then to have to do your home life, you know, or try to have a home. I don't know. It just ours kind of all melds together and becomes part of each other. And we don't mind it like that. That was Tori and David Salazzo of downtown Covington's Del Porto Ristorante and the Greyhound. What is foie gras and how is it made? Stay tuned and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana fish fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this fall. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is foie gras and how is it made? Translated from French to English, foie gras literally means fat liver. This celebrated luxury food is found mostly in high-end restaurants where even a small amount is quite costly. Traditionally, foie gras production has centered in the Aquitaine region of France, where for hundreds of years, ducks and geese have been carefully fattened to produce the large, ivory-colored lobes. Force-feeding is usually mentioned in conjunction with foie gras production, but the truth is, wild birds in nature annually gorge themselves before migration. Domestically, that process is humanely mimicked by caretakers who gently hand-feed their birds a high-calorie meal that aids in the fattening, a process known as gavage. While there's been limited foie gras production attempted in the U.S., there's one farmer who has changed that script, 
producing foie gras in a rural town just an hour north of New Orleans. Let's go there now. Ross McKnight is creating some of the most beautiful foie gras seen this side of the Atlantic Ocean at his farmstead, Backwater Foie Gras, in Bush, Louisiana. I got to know Ross visiting with him weekly at the Crescent City Farmer's Market. What a thrill it was to finally visit the farm to learn all about the process. I'm Ross McKnight. I am one of the owners and the operations manager of Backwater Foie Gras. (laughs) This is Dorothy McKnight, the farmer's wife, farmer, mother, homesteader. (laughs) Joining us there was Melise Diaz, the French woman who inspired it all with a taste of her homeland's foie gras. It started with a trip in France where we brought back some foie gras, Mm -hmm. my husband and I. And we were very friends with them, so we wanted to share that little piece of joy. And I think that's how the idea started in their, in their head, and they decided to study to become foie gras farmers. Yeah, absolutely. And what was your job? What were you doing? I was in finance. Uh, I was a financial advisor. Finance, I did really well in, but it wasn't my vocation, you might say. I kind of knew. I think actually when I took that job, I told my boss, you know, full disclosure, my goal is actually to start a farm in three years. <laughs> we didn't know, we knew that we wanted to start a farm and that it would involve poultry, but it's very difficult to farm in general. It's very difficult to start a farm. It's very difficult to start a farm that uses what might be called regenerative practices or just pasture-based practices. So it was helpful to find a niche and they provided that idea and Once we started doing some research, we realized, well, it's really not done, but we're crazy enough to try. So, yeah, I went to France. Uh, I went (laughs) to visit my parents that summer. Ross sent us over on a mission (laughs) to meet foie gras farmers Mm -hmm. that did that. And the farmer explained to me everything, like how the ducks cannot be scared, how if you see they don't digest, you can't force feed them. Like, force feeding is not a good thing to do, actually. He walked us through everything. I took a lot of notes. We studied a couple of really old books that I had found in, the, in an old like library. And he was like, the farmer was like, you know, I studied a lot. That's a lot of experience. I don't, I don't know that you can do that with like by yourself, just winging it basically. So I told Ross, I was like, I don't know, like, are you sure you want to abandon your job and do that? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So he did it. You're French, so you had doubts that we could produce. I had doubts. <laughs> and little by little, he got there. Honestly, they got there, all of them, like, cooking their product. It's as good as what I can have in France. After hearing the amazing tale, I couldn't wait to get out into the fields to meet the birds and see the operation. We began at a modified chicken trailer where the baby Pekin ducks were peeping up a storm. And how old are these? 
These are just about three weeks old, yeah. Really? Actually, no, these are just two weeks old. Yeah. They're they so grow fast. Big. They grow fast, yeah. They grow really fast. And so we just keep them with, you know, steady supply of fresh water. They have a non-GMO grain ration, and um, you have to give them little, little tiny pieces of rock. It's called grit. So they can, um, those actually are retained in the gizzard where they grind up their food. It's some muscle surrounding their stomach. How long have you been growing out specifically for restaurants? Well, we've started to transition mainly into that model because it's, since we're such small scale, it's the most sustainable way for us to do business is, you know, okay, you know, what are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And, um, you know, you want a superior product and you want it local. So we collaborate in that way. Um, and that also allows some really interesting things to happen on the plate, right? Because it's not just what's available. Oh, like I want X number of chickens. Well, no, it gets a little more detailed than that. I'm serving this type of dish, you know, I need these sorts of elements, and then we might choose a specific bird for those elements that they need. And so it's, you know, it becomes something that's really part of the terroir rather than just like, you know, off a truck, you know, from Minnesota. <laughs> How old will these guys be when they show up on the plate? These will be eight weeks, and I actually harvest these early. Um, just because they get to a really nice manageable weight, like between three and four and a half pounds. Um, and then they're really tender, but they also have dark meat. And so they have a lot, like, a proliferation of really dark meat, beautiful, succulent dark meat. So, yeah, meat chickens grow fast. So they'll go, at about three weeks, they'll be out on pasture, and they'll be on pasture until eight weeks when they go to slaughter. Cool. Foie gras production requires special feeding that takes place for just a few weeks before the birds and their foie gras head to market in the fall. This is kind of our main gavage barn. This is the rosary barn, actually, because you can fit 50 ducks in it. So we separate it into five different sections. You'll see there's a rail going through at the top, down the middle. That's where we suspend the, the gavos, which is the funnel that we feed them with. We will start the uh, pre-gavage process while they're on pasture, which is about a week long. So we give them as much feed as they want for an hour a day, and that's when they start to gorge themselves. So it kind of kicks in that instinct, well, hey, I need to prepare for, you know. And so they're gonna eat and they're gonna stuff themselves, and you'll, you'll go in there at the end of the feeding, and you know, their crops will be really large. You'll see it in the front of their chest. Uh, and that starts to dilate the esophagus, so it has a greater capacity. So this is something that would you know, they would do to themselves if they were going to go on a long migratory flight and they would start to gorge themselves. So we're simulating that, right? And then once that process occurs, then we can bring them into gavage and we can feed them uh, around 400 grams per duck every day of corn. So we have to prepare the corn a certain way to make it eminently digestible for ducks. So we cook the corn, add some uh, olive oil. Sometimes we have whey from the cow and milk. Or skim milk. Or skim milk, yeah. So we'll add that. And then basically we have, so wherever you see these little hips, right, these little metal piping sections here, this basically is the area where 10 ducks would be. So they'll be in here, their water will be there. If I'm gonna come in and feed them, I have a mobile partition that I have with me all the time, and I'll herd the ducks behind it. So they'll be here. I'll be sitting there on a little stool. Uh -huh. I'll have my bucket of corn, my little scoop, and then um, I'll take one duck at a time, I'll put them between my knees, and then basically you insert the funnel into their esophagus. Uh -huh. And they don't have, you know, cartilaginous rings or nerve endings or anything like that. The duck's biology is so different from ours. 
you know, that there's no suffering at all. And also um, you have to know that if there was suffering, they wouldn't make foie gras. Yeah. Because they would be stressed and so it would, Correct. It would prevent them from digesting correctly and making the foie. So it is really important that they don't suffer, that they're not scared by other animals or dog or anything. They have to feel good to make good foie gras. You know, if you're doing something against an animal's nature, generally speaking, you're not going to have a good product. Um, but this is, again, this is we're replicating something that occurs in nature. Just like you might, uh, you know, a cow, for instance, will eat seed heads, right? It'll eat grain in nature. But if we want beef that is grain finished, maybe we raise the cow in pasture, but we want to finish it on grain. Um, well, they're not, they wouldn't necessarily have access to all of that grain at once. Mm -hmm. But we bring it to them and say, here it is. And then we get beautiful results from that. So that's kind of the, the methodology and the philosophy of, of foie gras. How has it felt when you go into a restaurant that if somebody's using your product, they're calling it out by name on the menu, which means that you're in this echelon that very few people are able to achieve. So I have to really thank uh, Jeff Hansel over at Oxlot 9, yeah. um, when Oxlot 9 was still in, mm -hmm. in downtown Covington, because he was our first customer, I think, ever. Yeah, the first time we ever sat down and saw our name on a restaurant's menu was Oxlot. Um, and that was really, that was really surreal. Yeah, the first time it just blew that me was, away. Yeah. It just blew me away mm -hmm. that, you know, it was it something... Was, so good. We could do yeah. because, you know, it's like farming is that first, really, that first vocation of, of mankind. And it's just really strange when you've, you've brought something up from, you know, a tiny little fuzzball and then created this beautiful thing with it, cooperating with you. And then, yeah, it's, it's somewhat, it's, it's elevated to a level by people who devote their time and energy and their talents to the pursuit of cooking food well. And so they're really honoring it more than even maybe you could. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was a really beautiful thing. I think I even cried a little bit. <laughs> but it was just like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe we can do this. And, you know, maybe we can really... Well, that was towards the beginning. Maybe we can do something beautiful. Yeah. For it been a year. Because that was the goal, really, like to do something beautiful. Something I've considered you know, where will we be in 10 years? I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like people to, to set up some kind of system where people can learn while on a working farm and then apply that. I'm not so certain that backwater needs to be everywhere. You know, it needs to be everywhere as far as like the legacy and the, where people learn the skill and how they came by it. And, and uh, but I'd like to see a, a unique touch uh, spread across the state. I'd like to see more foie gras farms. I'd like to see people learn this ancient tradition, you know, this at least 5,000-year-old tradition that humans have done since humans were humans. A visit to Backwater Farmstead in Bush, Louisiana, where the McKnight family produces Backwater Foie Gras. We heard from farmer Ross McKnight and his wife Dorothy, as well as Melis Diaz, family friend and foie gras muse. 
Look for backwater foie gras on restaurant menus or meet the farmer himself at the Crescent City Farmer's Market and the Covington Farmer's Market. You can hear a longer version of our farm tour at poppytooker.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.